Well, in these uh, past two weeks, you've heard uh, two fantastic messages that I had nothing to do with. Uh, Ushers, thanks. I've forgotten the offering in every service. Uh, so thankfully, we have very responsible ushers who take good care of us. Uh, appreciate that. There are two good messages. Uh, Brian Candelo and Jen, uh, you know, Jen Roth talked to us about uh, from Mark 8 and 9, just talking about, and even in 10, talking about the, the countercultural nature of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and, and you know that that phrase, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, can be a, a hard concept to get your head around. What, what does that mean? Simply what it means is when we demonstrate first-time repentance and we come to the cross, admit our guilt, and receive forgiveness and receive Christ, uh, we, we enter into a new way of living. We enter into the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of God in the scriptures. And what that means is, is that we're submitting ourselves to the reign and the rule of Christ in our lives. That's why we call him Lord. Uh, that's a term for leadership. He becomes the leader of our life. And so we, we begin, we, we leave the life, the, the, the life that is, the, is, is conformed to the patterns of this world. We leave that life and we embrace this new life and embrace, if, if you will, so to speak, the customs of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Brian talked to us about a couple weeks ago. And talked about this custom of dependency and prayer and relationship. And that greatness in the kingdom of heaven is, is not status or position or even elitism. It's, if you want to be great, you're a servant. Um, that, that's what greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jen last week uh, spoke about the, the upside-down nature of the kingdom of heaven. And what it looks like and how contrary it is to how most people live their lives. Uh, talking about how it relates to marriage. And she gave us great context with Herod and Herodias and how they trivialized uh, th- their marriages. And, and then with kids, how to value kids. Not because they're cute and adorable, much like they were up here this morning, but because kids just so easily believe. In fact, you have to teach them to not believe. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, imitate their faith, imitate their innocence. So let the little children come to me. And then Jen also talked about the story of the rich young ruler and the one thing that was keeping him from following Jesus and, and how Jesus was able to expose that. And we were asked the question, what's our one thing? Is there something that God would ask us to let go of so that we can fully embrace the life that Christ is calling us to? So two great messages, countercultural customs of the kingdom of heaven and the upside down life in the kingdom of heaven. And you could say, I mean, you could say that really what Jesus is doing is he's showing us that we're living life upside down and turning us right side up. And I just want to launch from that and talk about uh, upside down politics. And I'm so grateful to be doing this in March and not November. Okay, because in November, uh, emotions run high. Our skin gets a little thin and, you know, names of candidates are put up for nomination and uh, state bills are written and amendments are are proposed. And um, and we we get caught up in this and and it it captures our attention and emotions kind of surge, kind of like a storm surge and it floods in. And as it recedes and the election is over, there's all kinds of collateral damage. And, 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 you know, in many cases, we can understand why we would get pretty, pretty emotional about stuff or pretty invested in certain things. It's not that it's all bad, but, but oftentimes it's rooted in, in things that are good causes. 
and, and, and things that are, that are going bad. And, and here's the temptation. When there is good cause, in fact, you might even call it a righteous cause. And when, and when that, you have this good cause or this righteous cause, and, 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 you're, and you're fighting against perceived enemies. And I say perceived enemies because people are never the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. But when we have good causes or righteous causes and we're, we're struggling with you know, perceived enemies with what we call evil causes, there's this temptation to do politics the world's way versus the Jesus way. You know, issues like, you know, same-sex marriage issues or even the legalization of marijuana. I was in Colorado last, last week, and just interesting to see how that's influencing Colorado. In fact, last night at the 6, 5 o'clock service, I told them that I was in marijuana looking at the legalization of Colorado. And they all looked at me like, you got too close. <laughs> you know, the, when you observe the social landscape, it's it, frankly, it, it's understandable why we would want to get you know, concerned and, and we may want to raise our voices and we want to make a difference, but how do you do it? How can you do it in a way that isn't a, a coercive act? Meaning that, you know, a lot of times what happens in election seasons, there's all this, this uh, advertising and, you know, some countries you call it propaganda. I just, I just call it verbal violence. It's just, it's just everywhere. And, and in some cases, that actually can lead to physical violence. I mean, all eyes are on Ukraine this weekend. I mean, what, what, what's, what's Russia going to do with Ukraine? And what are the, what's Western Europe? How are they going to respond? And because when it comes to power and control, what often starts out with strong language builds to, to aggression. And it, it just doesn't happen with countries. It can happen between friends. It, it can happen between coworkers. And what I want to do is, is looking at the end of Mark 10 and, and getting into Mark 11. We'll look at Mark 11 next, next week, uh, you know, a little, little clearer. But what I'm going to do is I want to just address this topically. I'm not going to walk through, you know, story by story at the end of chapter 10 and get into chapter 11. We'll get chapter 11 next week. I just, I just want to put the story right there, notice the context, step back for a moment, and observe what is about to happen. Because what is about to happen is, is Jesus is going to stride into the heart, the center of, of the political structures, religious structures, as well as intellectual structures. He's striding into Jerusalem, and he will come face-to-face with the Roman Emperor Pilate. He'll come face-to-face with Rome's protectorate, and he will come face-to-face with Caiaphas, the high priest who leads the religious structure of the day. And he will face his wisdom against the the Greek and Hellenistic thought of the day. You know, a, a, a degenerate religious system, a despotic tyrant, as well as, as a, a decadent intellectual culture, culture that's it's in Jerusalem. And as he strides in, in, in Mark 11 with the triumphal entry, what you're going to see after the cross, just months after the cross, you are going to see social upheaval in Jerusalem. The church will be birthed. It will have such influence in the city of Jerusalem that the religious structures of the day will persecute it and people will be scattered. And as they go, they don't go silent. They go out telling people about Jesus. And city by city, region by region, the, the, the nations are, are, are changed. In fact, 
play it through centuries, eventually Rome, this empire that's oppressing uh, nations, will, will be described as a Christianized empire. Constantine, for a variety of reasons, will declare himself Christian. How did Jesus do it? How did Jesus go into Jerusalem and cause such transformation that the world has never been the same? How did Jesus, how do you do politics Jesus style? If Jesus were to go in in the capital at Salem, if he was going to go to D.C., how would he he bring change? Because that's a question that I I think we need to grapple with. And and what I want to do is I just want to expose, topically I just want to expose three methods, three ways that Jesus did this. Call them political strategies. They're not really political in the sense of the word that we know it. But three methods that he used that transformed people's lives and thus transformed the nations, our world. You're here today because of his entry into Jerusalem. You are, if you're a Christ follower, your life has been transformed by this way that Christ has brought transformation to our world. So I just want to start with the very first obvious one, the very first thing you will see as we, as we end Mark 10. And by the way, Brian reminded us, the first, the first half of the Gospel of Mark is the rising popularity of Jesus. The second half of the book of Mark is the declining popularity of Jesus. There's a mood change here. And as Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he, he's, he's got this conversation with the disciples. And again, the air is politically charged. You'll see this in the request. They want the seats of honor. Jesus, you're moving in the White House. We want to be on your right. I want to be your right-hand man. I want, to, I want to sit in the seat of honor. I want that cabinet position. And Jesus is, you know, he's trying to get them to understand, no, this, that this is not happening, guys. And they just don't get it. Because they're locked into a certain paradigm of what it looks like to be in power. And then he's heading toward Jerusalem and he comes across this blind man who's crying out. He's saying, you know, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And as people are shushing him, Jesus stops in his tracks. I love that our God is interruptible. Don't you? And I love the fact that, that Jesus would not only ask his disciples this question, he would ask a blind man this question, what can I do for you? It's phenomenal that a great, majestic, supreme God would take the time to flex his schedule to ask you and I, what can I do for you? Where's your pain today? Where's your disappointment? What's your need? What can I do for you? And that really exposes one of the first methods of Christ. It's just flat-out humility. Humility was something that described Jesus. Now, obviously, in the incarnation, Jesus left, left the divinity of heaven and, 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 or heaven and, and set aside his divine prerogatives and took on human flesh. He humbled himself, the writer of Paul writes in, in the Philippians, to the Philippians. He humbled himself. Jesus expressed humility. And oftentimes, concepts like humility are difficult to understand, and it helps to look at the opposite of them. Because that gives us some added dimension. And the opposite of humility is pride. And one of them, there's a couple manifestations of pride. The first one is self-assertion, meaning I want to impose my will on you. Now, fictitious scenario here, but suppose I was married. And suppose that, that you know, with, with my wife, um, that I would, I would think that really I know better. Of course, this doesn't happen, but I, I, I know better. And so maybe, 
Maybe Trina would want to do something, but I would say to her, really, that's the wrong way to do it. Here's the right way. Let me just show you the best way to make this happen. It's, it's asserting, or no, we're not going to go do that. We're going to do this, because I know it's best for the family. I mean, come on. It's self-assertion, and I kind of kid at that, but we see that in so many ways. With, no, that's not the right way to do this. This is the right way to do this, and I'm going to assert my will on you, and that's a manifestation of pride. And the second manifestation of pride is self-protection. It means this is mine, and if you take something that I believe that I have got control over, and you take it for yourself, I'm going to protect. In fact, I'm going to fight for it. And isn't it interesting, in political seasons, we hear things like, we're going to take our country back. Like, this was mine, you took it, and I'm going to take it back. Now, I understand the motives behind it. They're not all bad motives, but what, ha- what often happens is that pride manifests itself and it feels like we're getting into a verbal fist fight. And those are manifestations of pride. But Jesus was humble. He, humility is a word that described him. Let me just define it for you, uh, just straight up here. I'll put it on the screen. Humility is an acknowledgement of our true condition before God. It is an acknowledgement that in our natural state, we are no better than our enemies. Let me just put our perceived enemies. It's an acknowledgement that, but for the grace of God, we are capable of and would probably be doing the very thing that we are now railing against. Humility is remembering that, but for the grace of God, I would be in the same mold. I would, I would probably be thinking the same thing. So humility is a reminder of who we were, who we are in God. And, and, and Jesus modeled humility. I mean, Isaiah prophesied that when he went to the cross, he would go like a sheep before the shearer, silent. Well, does that mean we can never say anything? No, no, of course not. He's going to make his decrees. He's going to speak his words. But he went to the cross and submitted himself to the cross, laid down his life for you and I. So it's, it's by his decrees, it's by his word that, that his will is accomplished. In fact, Eugene Peterson captures what I'm trying to communicate very succinctly. Peterson says, the means by which God's rule is put into effect is word, not muscle. Decrees, not armies. Creative speech, not coercive act. Or as one church father has said, force is no attribute of God. So humility is central to, to the, the heart of who God is. It is an attribute of who Jesus is. And in humility, he strode into Jerusalem and he rode a donkey. One day he will ride a white horse and he will come back. But until then, he rides a donkey. And he comes in humility. So that, that's, that's really one of the important things you need to understand about how Jesus transformed the world. It was through humility. The second way is through compassion. Now, compassion, if humility allows us to see who we, were, who we are before God, then compassion allows us to see what other people are before God. Humility is looking at us and understanding who we are before God. Compassion, who other people are before God, even if they behave and think differently. you got to get this, because Jesus did not just express compassion to people who agreed with him. 
I mean, think about this. Rome is evil. That's the evil empire, right? I mean, Rome is like, that's, that's the enemy. You're trying to get rid of Rome. So why would Jesus heal the servant of a Roman centurion? Why would he get all twisted up inside and have compassion on the enemy? Why would Jesus have dinner with Zacchaeus, a tax collector, a perceived compromiser and, and traitor, a guy who overcharges people their taxes and, and lines his own pocket? Why would he spend time with someone like that? Why would Jesus help a woman who was caught in an affair, caught in the act of adultery? Why would Jesus say to those accusers who wanted her put to death at that moment? I mean, it's an execution scene in John 9. Why would he say, okay, whoever has not sinned, go ahead and throw the first stone? Why would he have compassion on her? Because she, she was sinning. Why would Jesus touch lepers, people who were perceived to be under the judgment of God? Why would he do that? Because he had the ability to see people and his heart to connect with them even while they were in a state of living apart from the Father. And he had compassion. And it moved people's hearts and they flocked to him. It changed their hearts and it changed their minds. And I just want to say to you that not only is compassion a powerful spiritual act, compassion is a powerful political act. Now, why would I say that? Because those two don't seem to go together. Here's why I would say that, just from just knowing world history. Vladimir Lenin, leading the Bolshevik Revolution, early 1900s in Russia, Revolution's taking place. He's persecuting the church. Do you know one of his, his commands to the church was? It wasn't don't evangelize. His command was you cannot help the poor. Now, why would, why would Lenin forbid the church to show compassion to the poor and the oppressed? Why would in the 1970s, why would a, 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 a faction called the New People's Army, why would on the island of Mindanao, would the number one person on their hit list, the top of their hit list, the one person they wanted to assassinate and take out, why, would, why is the COO, the chief operating officer of a relief organization, number one on their hit list? Why in Peru in the 1980s did the Shining Path Army take the lives of so many employees of World Vision, another relief organization? Why the forbidding of caring for the poor? Why the violence against people who are caring for the poor? I'll tell you why. Because the moment someone experiences true love, you've won their heart and you have transformed their thinking. You've transformed their mind. And Jesus went around touching people authentically, genuinely, stirred with compassion for others and people experienced the genuineness of that and their, their heart was his. Interesting story that Chuck Colson uh, uh, writes about in one of his books. He tells a story of when, uh, when Ronald Reagan is president. He tells a story of how Reagan invited church leaders and denomination leaders to come to the, the Oval Office. And Reagan had this idea. The idea was this, that caring for the poor was not the job of government, but the job of the church. 
So he asked the church leaders if they would consider taking welfare and taking the care of the poor upon themselves and, and, and the government would help to some degree, but they would, they would lead it. The religious leaders who went into the, into the White House and heard him, many of them, Colson says in his book, many of them were angry at Reagan and said that the government was abdicating their responsibility. And, and, and Colson writes in his book, this is what he, what he writes. He says, though we may grumble over things like high taxes and welfare cheaters deep down, I suspect we like the system. After all, it spares us the pain of looking into the vacant eyes of a hungry person or drying the tears of an abused child. Money is a cheap substitute for human caring. The reality is, is that when you wipe away tears and when you look into the vacant eyes of someone who's hurt, it's a powerful spiritual act. And it captures Insincerity. I'm not talking about manipulation. I'm talking about sincerity. It changes people's hearts. You know, I can't help but in this service. Over here, Sam Skillern, sitting over here. Sam, you've been leading SLF, Salem Leadership Foundation, and you have been you've been you've been prioritizing compassion in our city. And I'll t- if you know Sam's story, you know what? The spiritual climate in Salem has changed. And much, a lot of it has to do with, with the work that Sam gives himself to. And it's taken a lot of time. And over time, transformation takes place. Compassion is powerful. It speaks loud and clear. And Jesus, in humility, I mean like a sheep going before the shears, and in compassion, authentic, sincere, heart-twisting love for people in their circumstances, even when they don't agree with you, Jesus was bringing transformation. And the last way he did it was through meekness. Meekness. I don't know what you picture when you, when you think meek. Um, you know, maybe you think of somebody who's weak, who doesn't have a spine, they can't stand for anything. And, uh, it's, it's a word in the English language we just can't really define well. Um, but you know, meekness is it was very important in Greek ethics. Meekness was this perfect balance between uncontrollable anger, you might call it rage on this side, and, and, and balance between, on this side, the inability to become angry. Or you might describe it as apathy. It's the, meekness is the perfect balance between uncontrolled anger, outbursts of rage, and the inability to become angry or apathy. If you've been through any of our peacemaker training, what this is, is that would be peace-breaking. All right? This would be peace faking. And we all know who we are. We know our, our tendencies. Maybe it's a tendency to have an outburst, outburst of anger or even rage. Or maybe on the other side, it's like, we're just trying to keep the peace. We're just trying to calm everybody down and, and, uh, and make sure everyone's, you know, getting along. Meekness is this wisdom that comes that knows when to get angry and when to be silent. Now, Aristotle defines meekness this way for us. He wrote and said, meekness is the ability to be angry with the right person for the right reason for the right amount of time. All right? And what we see in Jesus, we will see this next week. Jesus is going to be pretty angry. He's going to be turning over tables in the temple. I mean, he's going to be causing a scene. 
And yet you see Jesus in scenes where maybe you would think he would be angry, and he's not. He's compassionate. It's meekness. And we'll talk next, next week of why. Why did Jesus get so fired up? We'll talk about that, but it's a demonstration of meekness. This perfect balance between uncontrollable anger and the inability to be angry. Meekness, compassion, humility, those three things together. That, those were the methods. That was the life that Jesus Christ lived. And as he's striding into Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11, when you put all those three things together, our world, our world after the cross, after Christ goes to the cross, as Christ walks out of the empty tomb, after he ascends to the right hand of the Father, our world has not ever been the same. Now, I'm suggesting that we as a people, if we want to bring transformation, if we will be humble, compassionate, and meek, that we could change our world. We could change our city. We could change this state. And you may be listening right now and you're going, oh, you know, that's cute, Steve. That's really nice that you would, you know, you got that there. And, you know, that probably worked then. It was, you know, simpler times, pretty complex nowadays. You know, so, I mean, really, can we really change? Can anything really happen? I mean, can anything get done that way? Well, I think it's a fair question to ask. Can, can humility, compassion, and meekness, can it transform people? I don't know, look at the disciple John. He, he wanted to call fire down from heaven on the Samaritan village because they wouldn't let Jesus come to town. And later in time, he, his, he's like the apostle of love. I'd call that transformation. Or think about uh, our, our own society. Think about history in itself. Think about the civil rights movement. Think about Martin Luther King Jr. Who, with people who, who were oppressed, who after fasting and praying, after pledging themselves to nonviolent protests, would march down streets and they'd face the clubs of policemen and they would be beat over the head and they would just fall to the ground and pray. And over the course of time, of that kind of living, it appeared, each time it happened, it appeared like they were losing, but we were winning. The civil rights movement is a classic example of humility, compassion, and meekness changing and transforming culture, and it still needs to be transformed. And think about Nelson Mandela, who was in prison in Robben Island for many, many years. He's released from prison, and he forgives his enemies. He's not bitter, and South Africa eventually elects him to be his president, to be their president. Did he get into power by coercion, by physical violence or verbal violence? No, he went simply to the president's office through humility and by a forgiving spirit, frankly. And he earned the respect of his countrymen. You know, think about a guy who wasn't even a Christ follower, Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi overthrew a powerful colonial power simply through nonviolent protests and through speaking words for getting angry at the right things. And Gandhi, he freed India from England. Friends, you can look in history, you can look at the lives of people. Humility, compassion, and meekness is powerful and will transform lives. You live that out in your neighborhood, you live that out in your workplace, you will see transformation. 
You'll see puzzled looks. You will see transformation because our world is used to seeing this, this assertion of my own will on others. This protective mindset. And again, when the cause, when the cause is good, when the cause is even righteous, and we're, we're, we're fighting against perceived enemies that are living out in, in, in living wicked or promoting wicked or evil ways, the temptation is to do politics the world's way. Which is why you have anomalies like you know, abortion doctors being murdered. Which is why you have historical anomalies like the Crusades. And so for you and I, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, what our challenge is, is are we going to exert ourselves for power and control because we're right? Are we going to live the Christ life in such a way that people see what it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven and they'll say, I got to have that. And at times it feels like you're losing. And it really isn't about losing or winning. It's about honoring Christ. It's about exalting Christ. It's about imaging who God truly is to our world. Couple questions. First question is this When faced with a decaying culture, do I attempt to do politics the world's way or the Jesus way? How am I going to do it? We need, we need uncommon wisdom in this day. We need to know when to be silent. We need to know when to put the bullhorn down and to say no thanks to the petition. We also need wisdom to know when we need to stand up and say, you know what, this is not right. And we need a spirit's voice whispering in our ear to know and be able to discern which is which. Which way are we going to do it? The second question I'd ask is this. What do you want me to do for you? If Jesus, concerning humility, compassion, and meekness, you're blind Bartimaeus. If you were to pick one of those three, don't, don't pick all of them. Just pick one. Which one of those three are you most blind to? Do you find yourself in this place where pride is exerting itself in you and over others? Maybe your prayer today should be, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Arrogance rises in me. Maybe it's compassion. Maybe it's, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. My heart is calloused. I don't even feel for people. Or perhaps it's, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I need meekness. I need to know that perfect balance between anger and, and silence. Which one would the Spirit be saying to you this morning? I, need you to, I want you to see in this area. What do you want him to do for you? And as he answers our prayers, I, I believe with sincerity of heart that transformation will indeed take place. I believe with sincerity in heart that our city will indeed be a city at peace with God as we exhibit the peace of the Savior in our own lives.